But you now to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Matthew. Uh, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 7 uh, this morning. Should have mentioned it at the beginning, but I lost my voice on Thursday night, and it's coming back. So if I veer off a little bit or sound weaker, that's what's happening. But thankful for the healing God's given and for the opportunity to be here. Matthew chapter 7, we'll read and focus on uh, verses 13 through 23. So hear now God's word to us this morning. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is God's word to us this morning. May he add his blessing as we uh, hear it uh, preached and study it this morning. Well, last Saturday, I ran for the first time a 10-kilometer race. It was my wife's Father's Day gift to me, which was very nice, um, but I remembered something. I did some cross-country and stuff in grade school and high school, and I remembered running this race, something about races that I'd forgotten, and that is that races are extremely hard. You know this if you've done any running. It's, you get partway through, especially when it's that type of distance, and it's, it's exhausting. It's painful. Everything in your body is screaming out to stop, to find an easier way uh, to do it. Setting races aside, this can be a, a way that we think about life, a way we approach life. When things get difficult, we frequently want to find easier ways to do it, even if that isn't right. And when we apply this to our spiritual lives, there's a greater danger there. We can want, it can be a temptation to want our, our spiritual walk to be, to be easy, to be, to be comfortable. Perhaps we want uh, simply a checklist of activities to do that we can check off and feel good that we're obeying God. We don't want, often we don't want a spiritual existence, a spiritual walk that is difficult, that is costly. That's what Jesus addresses in this passage, as he begins really what's the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's asking a question, what will you do with all this? 
If you go back to, to the beginning of Matthew 5 and read everything, Jesus in this conclusion begins by asking, what will you do with what I've said? And he blows the idea that following him is easy out of the water. But he offers us something much greater instead. And that's what we want to pay attention to this morning. There's three points that we want to think about as we, we go through this passage that we read. First, we want to see that Jesus speaks about roads. He speaks about roads. And he speaks about wrong turns. And lastly, he speaks about results. So roads. Jesus begins this conclusion of the sermon by speaking about roads. And he holds out two roads for us. I remember this illustrated when I was a kid. We had a a VHS tape of a, a cartoon children's version of Pilgrim's Progress, the classic John Bunyan uh, story uh, that talks about this man, Christian, who travels from uh, the city of destruction to the celestial city. And in one scene in, in this video, Christian and his two traveling companions come to a place in the road where they're confronted with a big hill right in front of them. And up that hill go, is a narrow, rocky path that's very steep. And that's the way there to go. Christian knows this because he's been given instructions. And so he knows that's the way he needs to go, and so he travels it. Meanwhile, his two other traveling companions who uh, are looking for an easy way out don't want uh, the effort and and cost of going up this steep hill. And so they opt to to walk the wide, uh, flat road that goes on either side of this hill. The result being that one trips and falls into a canyon and the other gets lost forever in the deepest, darkest forest you've ever seen. This illustrates what Jesus has before us in this passage this morning. It illustrates that Jesus here holds out that there's only two ways to live. There's only two roads that we can walk and they lead to only two final destinations eternal destinations. It's where the weight of this passage, the weight of the sermon as a whole, really hits us. Jesus presents a sobering conclusion that there there are only two ways. There's a a, a wide way and a narrow way. So what are these? What, What does Jesus mean by the wide road and the narrow road? What do these look like? Well, the wide road is essentially the way that ignores everything that Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point. If you would flip back in your Bibles to the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, we'll just do a quick summary of what Jesus has said so far. Let me catch us up. Matthew chapter 5, the, the sermon begins with the Beatitudes, these blessed are uh, statements that really characterize those who are, are following Jesus, those who are, are living in the kingdom of God. This is followed up by, by Jesus laying out the identity of his people, that there's, they're salt. They're the salt of the earth. They're the light of the world. And then verses 17 through, through 20, Jesus lays out really his thesis statement, his main argument for this sermon, and says that the righteousness that his followers need, the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven, is a righteousness that far exceeds, that's greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he really unpacks the law, the Ten Commandments, for his hearers, describing what this righteousness 
that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees looks like. And he says it's a righteousness that comes in, in obedience that comes from the heart, recognizing the true intent of God's law and is a life that's lived in obedience to it. And then in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus begins to speak about spiritual disciplines, we could say, about uh, giving gifts, about prayer, about, um, about fasting. And here, too, he, he recognizes, he, he argues that, that these things are not about the outward actions themselves or about what's in our heart, but a heart that's truly seeking to live for Christ. And he follows this up by, by the well-known, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Reiterating that where, what we treasure, there our heart is. And so Jesus' point, we could go on, you can look at that, but Jesus' point through all of this has been that the righteousness that God is calling his people to is a righteousness that comes from the heart. The wide road ignores that completely. The wide road that Jesus is talking about is a wide road, is a road that focuses merely on externals. It ignores the greater righteousness that Jesus has spoken of. It ignores the fact that Jesus is after our hearts. It's a road that's characterized by self-righteousness, it's characterized by outward actions only. It's the road that the Pharisees were walking. It's the road of the Pharisees where they brought God's law, twisted uh, God's law down to the bare minimum so that they could say they were keeping it. But it's a danger for us too. It's easy to, to focus merely on the outward activities of our lives, merely on behavior modification, simply doing what's, what's right uh, because that's what people want or maybe because that's what God wants. It's reading our Bible simply to check off uh, the, the passages on our reading plan, which I'm very guilty of as well. It's, it's, it's going to church uh, out of tradition or because it's simply a good thing to do instead of desiring truly to meet with Jesus and worship with his people. It's a life that, that misses the point that Jesus is after our hearts, that he's after our hearts that are passionately following him, which is the way of the narrow road. The way of the narrow road that Jesus describes as hard, as difficult. It's hard for that very reason that it, Jesus wants our hearts to be involved. He's after a heart level obedience. This also means that it's a costly road. It costs us our wants. It costs us our desires. It costs us our way of living in order to enter in the way of living that Jesus is calling us to. It's hard because we truly have to be honest with ourselves and recognize that we're far more sinful than we like to think we are. We have to acknowledge that we actually love living with one foot in the church and another foot in the world, that we want Jesus and, and the things that are out there as well. It's hard because we have to die to ourselves, die to our wants, die to our lusts, and live wholeheartedly. It may cost us money, may cost us popularity, may cost us the comforts that we're so used to here in North America. For some Christians, it costs them their lives. As costly as it is, as hard as it is, Jesus says this way is so, so good. 
he holds out is that, that although this way is difficult, it's extremely short compared to the eternal glory that awaits God's people. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says that, this, uh, that the sufferings that we experience now cannot compare to the eternal weight of glory that, that awaits the people of God. Difficult life now in following Jesus ends in a glorious, eternal future with him. That's the road that Jesus is calling us to this morning. It's a way of of life in which we cast everything on him, a way of life in which we recognize that Jesus himself is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, as as he says in John 14, verse 6. It's a way in which, yes, we recognize our sinfulness, our brokenness, that we disobey God, that we do not do his will. But it's a way of life in which we recognize that Jesus has also forgiven us, that he's died in our place to wash us clean. And it's a life of complete submission to him. Which we recognize that it's only in Jesus that we're forgiven. It's only in Jesus that life truly has ultimate purpose and meaning because he restores us to a relationship with God the very thing that we were created for it's a road that ends in eternal glory so this is Jesus' call to you today to set aside a, a wide road way of thinking a, a way of thinking uh, that, that says I can have Jesus and a bit of, of sinful living in the, this world and said Jesus' call is to wholeheartedly trust in him, to wholeheartedly recognize who he is, to, to recognize that he is the great Savior, and to live for him. But even as Jesus lays out this narrow road, he also warns us against wrong turns. That's our second point. He warns us against wrong turns. And the issue that, that Jesus presents us here with is the fact that wrong turns sometimes look so good. They sometimes look so appealing, so safe, even so right. If you look at verse 15, that's the imagery that Jesus is presenting. There are those who, who come in sheep's clothing and yet are inwardly ravenous wolves. This is really a difficult section to unpack because our minds could go any number of places could react any number of ways we have different ideas and and there's just a broad spectrum of what constitutes a false teacher and there's ways that we can misunderstand what jesus is saying here so for clarity's sake let's start by recognizing what jesus is not saying what jesus is not saying in these verses jesus is not saying that if you struggle or have a hard time with a particular doctrine or ask questions about it, that you're a false teacher. He's not saying that. Nor is he saying that if someone accidentally slips up and makes a mistake in something that they say or, or isn't quite spot on on something, that they're a false teacher. There's an interesting story in Acts 18 where we meet a man named Apollos. Apollos was preaching and teaching, but he didn't quite have a, true, a full grasp of the gospel. And we read in Acts 18 that the Apostle Paul's friends, Aquila and Priscilla, take him aside and, and, and teach him privately uh, the truth, the, the full truth of the gospel. So we don't want to take these words of Jesus 
and say that anyone who says something a little bit off is a false teacher. Nor is Jesus saying that we need to be suspicious of every minister that comes up here or every Bible study teacher or every church member. He's not saying that either. But he is offering, giving, a sobering warning. And that is the reality that false teachers come in the church like sheep. They can look like your average church member. They can be involved in the church. They can be a good, moral person. They can serve on committees, maybe even do some teaching. But yet Jesus says the reality is they're not there for the good of the church. They're there to kill and destroy. They're there to divide and cause friction and tension in the church. It's a reality that we see throughout the New Testament as well. Uh, Various places in the New Testament, the apostles warn uh, elders and church leaders that there will be false teachers rising up in the church. In Acts 20, uh, Paul is giving his farewell address to the, the elders in the church in Ephesus. And in that address, he warns them to to, to be on guard because there will be those who rise up from within them, from within the church itself, who twist God's word, who seek to deceive people, who want to lead people astray from the church. And likewise, in 1 Timothy 1, Paul, writing to Timothy, the young pastor at the church in Ephesus, Paul tells Timothy that, to be on guard against those who teach a different doctrine, who promote speculations, who, who uh, dabble in, in all kinds of strange teaching with, with the desire to, to lead people astray, who distort the gospel for people in the church. It can be a discouraging and, and sobering to read these words of Jesus as we recognize that there is the reality of false teachers in our day as well shows us that the, the, the church is far from perfect. We haven't been brought into glory yet where all things will be made perfect. And yet even as sobering as this is, Jesus offers encouragement. And he offers encouragement in a statement that you will recognize them by their fruit. This is the bulk of the section that Jesus, uh, the bulk of this paragraph, Jesus describing or reiterating that we will know them by their fruits. Now, what are the fruits that we should be paying attention to? There's really two kinds of fruit that we could uh, note. Uh, false teachers, and uh, first of all, is, is their teaching, the teaching itself. False teachers come in and they seek in various ways, often very subtly, to undermine the truth of the gospel. They'll either add things to it, you need a Jesus plus Something else. That's the issue that the Galatian church was dealing with and that Paul addresses in the book of Galatians. Or taking something away from that. Or they'll undermine in some way the core teachings of Christianity, the, the, the teachings we confess in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. In subtle ways as well, they'll seek to undermine the authority and the inspiration of Scripture, maybe claiming that certain sections of the Bible actually aren't inspired, that they're actually a myth of some kind and don't have the same weight as other sections of the Bible. Or that Jesus isn't all he's made out to be. That the work, person and work of Jesus is downplayed and, and human goodness 
is elevated. And these are, are just to name a few, and, and they often come more subtly than explicit, ta- uh, explicit statements. But the point is that, that various teachings of false prophets are the fruit that Jesus is telling us to be on guard against. But Jesus is also warning us to, to look for the fruit of character or lifestyle. Because it's possible to have a very good theology, impeccable theology even, and yet be someone who's bent on causing division and tension and strife within the church. Fruit can be seen in, in a lack of, of love towards others and a quick judgment and quickly condemning someone for something they say or do can be seen in pride or, or, or arrogance and unwillingness to, to receive instruction, to hear from others, to be corrected if need be. It can be combativeness, a, a desire to again divide the church, to, to gain followers, to gain popularity. Jesus' point in this whole section is that it can look so good. Outward actions can look so good. And yet there's a heart behind it that's dangerous. But Jesus' encouragement is that we will know it by their fruits. Eventually, the reality will come out. But it calls us to be people of prayer. It calls us to be people who recognize our need uh, for help, for God's help and discernment. We, it, it calls us to be people who are, are praying for wisdom, praying that we might be able to discern truth from error uh, in doctrine, someone's doctrine in life. We also need to be praying for, for the grace to love well, to be able to correct graciously when that's needed. It also calls us, Jesus' teaching on false prophets also calls us to be people of God's word, people who know the Bible well, who spend time reading it, who spend time meditating on it, seeking to understand what it says. There's a call to be like the Berean church, that we read about in Acts 17, who heard Paul preach and then, then searched the scriptures day and night so that, they might, uh, so that they might confirm that what Paul said was true. There's a call to know basic theology. That's the, the purpose of, of the Sunday school and catechism classes and, and Bible studies, that we might be a people who, who know God's word, who know what God's word teaches, and can be a discerning people. But why does this all matter? Well, Jesus says it matters because of the results. Our third point, results. You can see this in verses 21 to 23, which is perhaps the most, most sobering part of the sermon up to this point, where Jesus really hones in on the eternal nature of what he's been talking about, the eternal destiny of the false prophets that he's just mentioned. And he sums it up by saying in the last day, and judgment day, there will be those who come to him and say, and confess his name. They say, Lord, Lord. But they weren't actually his followers. Jesus is saying that not everyone who looks like a good religious person, not everyone who, who can talk the talk, not everyone who does good deeds is his follower. There's a really helpful biblical illustration. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 19, 
You have the account of, uh, the, in the life of Jesus' ministry, of the rich young ruler uh, coming to Jesus. Matthew writes that, that this rich, uh, rich young man comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus responds by telling him, keep the law. Keep the law. You can almost imagine, this isn't there, but you can almost imagine the man having a bit of a confused look. And he says, well, well which commandments? Which commandments do I need to keep? And so Jesus starts listing them. He says, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. You almost see uh, this rich young man, perhaps a religious leader in the day, uh, with a checklist going, check, 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 I've, I've kept all of them. Jesus, I'm good with the law. I've done all of that. What else do I need? Jesus responds, by saying, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come after me. How does the man respond to that? We read that he goes away sad. He goes away sorrowful. What was his problem? What was this young man's problem? Did he not know his Bible well enough? Did he not... Uh, keep the law well enough? Was he not a moral enough person? Was he not sincere enough? Well, likely he, he knew his Bible, the, the Old Testament inside and out, as a good Jew would in that day. Uh, he, by his own admission, had done his best to try to keep God's law, and, and he seems like a very sincere person coming and asking Jesus a very important question, what do I need to do to be saved? So what was his issue? problem was he did not want to follow Jesus from the heart. The narrow road of leaving behind his self-centered priorities, of, of leaving behind his sin, surrendering everything to follow Jesus was too much for him. It drove him away from Jesus. It was too much to give up his wealth. He was happy with following Jesus as long as he could have a hold on his wealth and on power and on other things that he wanted to in his life. But it was too much to live the greater righteousness that Jesus speaks of in the Sermon on the Mount, the righteousness that leaves everything behind and follows after Jesus. It was too much for him to be wholeheartedly, single-mindedly living for Jesus. So the question we're faced with this morning is, what about you? What about me? Are we truly willing to count the cost to follow Jesus? Are we truly known by Jesus? Is that, are we following Jesus? Where's your heart? Where's my heart? What are we living for? Who are we living for? This is a sobering reality that Jesus gives that not everyone who thinks they're safe and secure actually is. But the point, his point is, is not to discourage us. His point is not to discourage us, not to beat ourselves up, not to turn extremely introspective and, and analyze and, and critique every motive for every action we do. Jesus' point in this is to drive us to Him, to drive us to His Word, to drive us to the reality that He is the Savior, 
And that he is the one who washes away our sins with his blood. He is the one who transforms us from the inside out. From people who care only about external activities. To people who long for a heartfelt relationship with Jesus. Yes, Jesus' passages, yes, Jesus' words are, are, are to warn, but he also gives us hope because it's the same Jesus who gives this sobering word here that says later on in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The call, the invitation, the exhortation that Jesus holds out in this passage, in the Sermon on the Mount, in in the whole Bible, is to come to him and to be changed. To believe in him as our only savior, as our only hope. To die to ourselves, to, to take up our cross Uh, to follow him, to love him with all our heart, souls, mind, and strength, and to find life in his name. It's a hard call. As I've preached through the Sermon on the Mount at Redeeming Grace and then studied these various sections, it felt like each week Jesus' words were getting harder and harder and harder. Let's not forget that Jesus offers hope. One author has sums this up, sums this passage up by saying this, quote, The way is unutterably hard, and at every moment we are in danger of straying from it. If we regard this way as one we follow in obedience to an external command, if we are afraid of ourselves all the time, it is indeed an impossible way. But if we behold Jesus Christ going on before step by step, we shall not go astray. For he is himself the way, the narrow way, and the straight gate. He and he alone is our journey's end. Loved ones, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. These words are difficult. They're difficult for sinful people like me and you. But Jesus presents himself here as the one who saves us. The one who enables us to keep these words, the one who will one day bring us to himself, to the very goal of the narrow road, eternity with him. And we follow him only as we look to him as our hope, our help, and our Lord. Let's pray together.